Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Linda Shea is co-founder and managing director of Scalar Capital, a crypto asset investment firm. Before launching Scalar, Linda was at Coinbase for about three years. Today on the show, we discuss how Scalar Capital chooses the assets they invest in, how they research things that aren't in the public market, the state of privacy coins today and where they're headed, plus how Linda became one of the wealthiest people on Neopets at only 10 years old. Linda, you're one of the most widely known people in the crypto space and outside of the crypto space. Uh, if you haven't checked out the Medium post, I highly recommend check out Linda's Medium blog. But what a lot of people don't know is that your journey in crypto actually started with an econ paper in college in 2011, three years after Bitcoin was released into the wild. So I wanted to start there, and I was wondering what the actual paper was about and how you decided to write about Bitcoin in a time when most people didn't know what it was. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, that econ paper was awful, by the way, and I cringe every time I read it. But basically, my friend and I took this econ elective where you would just write about a random topic, and we really didn't want to write about something boring because it was like your entire quarter spent on this. So we were reading a bunch of articles, and we came across articles about darknet markets, and we're like, oh, this is so cool. Like People are selling all kinds of illicit things on here, and they're using something called Bitcoin to accept it. And we decided to write about Bitcoin and our research was like literally going in these darknet markets, seeing how much like what people were buying on there and like what people's perception of Bitcoin was. And we wrote about just like who created this, how it worked. And ultimately, the paper was saying that we never thought this was going to be a viable currency. And it was like very negative at the time, like it was largely associated with Silk Road and and there was like Mt. Gox, and there was also a U.S. senator that was trying to shut down Bitcoin. So there was like all kinds of negative things there. And we're like, well, if you actually want this to be taken seriously as a currency, there's no way it could actually take off with a background like this. And so we just kind of kept an eye on it as a hobby. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, it's kind of crazy because now my career is in this space. But back then it was, it was very different. Wow, and it's so cool that you were doing more of this investigative type of work because I think that ends up laying the groundwork for what you initially started doing at Coinbase and before you were a PM, and we'll get to that in a second. But what you ended up doing as soon as you graduated was uh, becoming an analyst at AIG in New York, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this more of this like traditional financial path that you're on in an incredibly great place. And then you decide to make the jump into Coinbase. What was the, what were your friends' reactions when you decided to take the leap? Like, what did that conversation with your parents, how did that unfold? Yeah, I definitely remember these really clearly. So in terms of my friends, they were just always really supportive. They kind of thought, they were a little bit skeptical, but they always were supportive of me following my passions. My parents aren't as close to, you know, following your passions kind of thing because they're immigrants from China and they were like working their asses off to get to America and give me good opportunities. And so they were so happy once I was able to land a job at AIG and it was a very stable place to work. Uh, this is post-financial crisis, very stable place to work, to big to fail and so they were like just really like they were I think just really disappointed when I said that I wanted to leave to join a startup in a space that like they had never even heard of and I think um, it, it took a long time for them to come around to it and once they started seeing how successful Coinbase became they're like oh this is great and uh, and then once Coinbase you know reached unicorn status I was like okay well I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna start my own thing and like what are you doing and they're like stop doing this to us and so you know it's just kind of like the cycle between me and my parents but my coworkers at AIG I remember so many mixed mixed reactions there I remember a lot of people being like bitcoin like all I've heard is that's like drug money like are you doing criminal stuff like what's happening there and then I remember people being like just saying like why don't you just like climb your way up here it's like a lot more stable or at least like try to hit senior analyst or something and I was kind of like eh, like I'm just gonna do what I want to do 
And the last day, as I was leaving, a few people were yelling out to me, and they're like, oh, you know, good luck at Coinstar when I was walking out, because they literally thought I worked at, like, the change company. So, yeah, it was a lot of mixed reviews, but now, actually in 2017, I got a lot of people reaching back out, and were curious what, what the hell Bitcoin was and what I was doing, so it was, it was pretty cool. Amazing. I love that the common theme is that you never let yourself get too comfortable. I feel like you're always ready to take on that next challenge. And even when Coinbase was clearly becoming a rocket ship and well on its way towards great valuation, you decided to forge ahead with your own thing. But it's but let's talk about what those first few months at Coinbase were like. Mm-hmm. We were it was around 2014, so we were in the middle of the 2013 to 2015 crypto winter. Mm-hmm. What work were you doing and what was the sentiment like outside of outside of Coinbase? Yeah, the first few months of Coinbase were really awesome. Actually, I remember the moment I joined being like, wow, like I'm so happy I made this decision. People internally were super passionate about crypto and they like really didn't pay too much attention to the markets. And I, my, first, my first role there was a regulatory compliance investigator. So my job was to help build out the compliance program and then train law enforcement on what Bitcoin was and catching cyber criminals with them. So that was really fun. And I actually like, did spend time on darknet markets, but like for my actual job, which was like, pretty cool. And the outside perception do back... You, uh, do you have any stories from the darknet investigative days? I definitely can't say too much with that, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, it was really fun getting to like kind of just like watch the creative ways that people were like starting the darknet markets and how they were differentiating themselves. And like when they would get shut down, like another one would pop up immediately. And it was it was just like kind of cool to see like in a way just how resilient they were and just how creative they were. So I don't think I can tell too many stories about that. But there, the, there it's important to know that there were things like beyond just drugs being sold there. Like there were also um, there were also darknet markets that like. Ref- used to sell like um, weaponry or anything that was like hurting other people Um, so they actually had like morals on some of these darknet markets like they just wanted to make it a safer place for people to just buy drugs instead of meeting up in some like dark alleyway or something and then there were also books being sold on there like rare books and stuff so I it was kind of cool just like getting to check out like what gets sold on there and like what people are buying but yeah so the perception outside of Coinbase I mean it was kind of cool because like people still didn't really know about it and so during the bear market back then you weren't really like impacted in terms of people being like how are you doing like you you told me to buy Bitcoin and now it's worth nothing like people just like didn't know about it and so you you would say like oh I work at Coinbase and people like oh cool what's that so I think you were really like isolated from the bear market which is like quite different than what's happening right now. Absolutely. And I guess within the crypto space, do we see the same type of behaviors with actual cryptocurrency enthusiasts during the previous bear markets and this bear market? How is it different and how is it the same? It's actually pretty different because a lot of people came into the space in 2017 just because they had learned about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because of the price action. But then they like fell down this rabbit hole and were like super excited about this tech and they actually stayed for it. So we're seeing so many developers actually coming into the space that we've never seen before. And we like they're like top talent, too. And so they're building like actual products and and things that like are a lot easier for people to use. And there's just like more. There's more like understanding of what this is all about. I I find myself like when I talk about Bitcoin to people outside of this space, like they're like, oh, that's cool. You know, like I'd love to learn more about it, you know, and back then like people just didn't care. So it's it's really different. And I'm more bullish now in this bear market than I was in the last one, just because of the amount of development and people that are in the space. Like the talent is so incredible. You're always seeing these people leave like top tech companies to work in this industry. So it's really inspiring to see that. Amazing. And agreed regarding the increased development. And we've actually seen a lot more cryptocurrencies developed and in this space. And I know early on in Coinbase, Brian was incredibly focused on only a few coins that have long-term value being listed. Since then, we've seen over 30 coins listed now. And I was curious about your take, your perspective on Coinbase expanding their asset support and if that seems different type of ethos or how, how they're thinking about the space now. Yeah, I have um, a lot of mixed feelings about that. I totally understand why they're doing it because that is part of their business model. At the same time, I do think that Coinbase has that brand name in the space, and that's why I joined them in the first place. They're considered the like easy on-ramp into this world, and I point a lot of people who are very new to this space to use this, and I think it's really important that they're listing cryptocurrencies that 
are you know have have a high bar for the technology and team. And so I worry that when there's too many coins out there, you know, that you're trying to list, some of them aren't actually necessarily good coins. And hopefully they'll never list like outright scams. But I, I just when when they're saying that they're going to add like thousands of coins, like I just can't imagine like what they're going to be adding. So I worry a little bit about that because I think that can potentially hurt retail investors. So I I really have mixed feelings about it. I think like maybe the the like thousands of coins that get added should go to like the exchange versus like you know the Coinbase consumer product. And that's a good point to bring up that there are different product offerings. And I do think in a way, it kind of, you know, based on your risk tolerance or how informed an investor you are or what type of game you're playing or what you're optimizing for, that is important, but interesting to hear your take on it. I kind of want to switch gears and focus on what you're up to now. So you launched Scalar Capital and you've already given it before, but if you can just give a brief overview of what your thesis is. But what I'm especially interested in learning is how do you actually choose the assets you end up investing in? Yeah, so um, Scalar Capitals only invest in crypto assets right now, and we're really focused on this idea of privacy. And so going back to my days of actually tracing Bitcoin and working with law enforcement, it I've realized how transparent Bitcoin is. And so I think it's important that if you want something to be a store of value or a payment system or do anything with sensitive data, you want to make sure that it's actually private. And so a lot of people just don't really realize that, even in the industry, just how transparent things are. So we want to make sure we're making a bet on something that's actually critical for this to succeed ahead of when people start realizing it. So we invest in uh, different privacy coins, private smart contracts platforms and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we don't want to pigeonhole hold ourselves to like one specific thesis because this space changes so quickly and we want to be able to invest in things that actually come along and that we think are really compelling and it's the same way that like when I first joined Coinbase it was a Bitcoin only company and we were very like focused on Bitcoin and and that was kind of like all I really looked at or cared about and then when Ethereum came along it really opened my eyes to like a lot of other things that could be created and so I think regardless of how people think about Ethereum itself, I I mean, it did create a lot of innovative things. And so I think it's important to just know that like things come along in the space and you need to be open to investing to it. Completely agree. I think epistemological humility ends up being a great long-term game in understanding that there are new opportunities and we're confined with what we know today to be true. And uh, the future has a funny way of changing that. So what do you say, what would you say is the state of privacy coins right now? And where do you see it trending? Yeah, the state of privacy coins right now actually I think has improved a lot. So I remember when we launched Scalar, a bunch of people would tell me like, oh, well, there's no way that a regulated exchange would ever add a privacy coin. And I was like, no, like you're absolutely wrong. Like like privacy is actually important to people, businesses and regulators. So it's just a matter of time before they get more education and realize that like you can actually have privacy coins on these platforms, but actually still be compliant. So you can like share additional information as part of your KYC AML. And so then we saw Zcash get added to Gemini and Coinbase. And so I think people started realizing, oh, this is actually like possible for people to actually care about this. And I think the trend is just increasing now with additional privacy features that people are talking about for adding to Bitcoin. There's more infrastructure available for privacy. There's privacy coins launching with Mimblewimble technology. So it's the trend's actually really increasing. I never thought it was going to be like overnight that all of a sudden people would care about privacy. But over time, like you realize how important it is for the space. And I, I just realized I didn't answer one question where you said, like, how do I basically choose these assets? It's honestly like a, it depends on the stage of the, the coin. So if in the public markets, I mean, you're basically able to look at the open source code and actually see how competent developers are. And I think it's such an important tool to like actually see like who's building this, how many people are contributing to it. Looking for at the technology and the use case, use case in particular, I think people get really caught up in like, oh, this should be decentralized and this should be on a blockchain. But like, I think like many of us in the industry agree that like it's actually just like a really slow database oftentimes and like you don't need to put everything on the blockchain and it's quite expensive so it's it's really not ideal for many things and let's say that it actually needed to be decentralized because there was some need for a censorship resistant well in the end like 
who's your audience? Like, who's actually using this? That's, I think, another question is, like, a lot of people just don't care about how decentralized something is, and so we need to make sure that this is something that looks and feels just like any other product that someone was going to use that's centralized. So we think a lot about just, like, use cases, product market fit, their go-to-market. Obviously, the team is so important. I think that matters a lot in the public markets, but it uh, matters even more when you're investing in the private markets. And so you really spend a lot of time with the team understanding how they're thinking about the space. Their motivations for being in the space is actually really important for me because these markets are so volatile. And the last thing I want is to invest in a team that just like bounces during a hard time. So motivations, what's their background? Like, are they even capable of building something like this? Like, do they have the experience needed? It's like, I actually have seen like teams where they're pitch building this like new blockchain and it's all this really complex technology and their background is like literally completely irrelevant and they have like no, like there's some teams that just didn't even have like technical experience. And I was like, how are you going to build this? We're like, oh, we're going to hire the team to do this. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I, I feel really nervous about this. And so yeah, we look at all kinds of different things, but I don't view it as too different than like a VC style investing. The things that you're looking for that's a little bit different is like, well, it is like you're investing in open source technology. And so you have to basically understand how this team can create a moat around what they're doing because someone can just copy and, and, and fork it away, right? So that part is really different. Whereas like in traditional VC style investing, you you know, you know want to be rent seeking, like you want to charge money and, and that's a good thing. And no one can like just easily copy your code. So I think like what we, in terms of like what we look for in moats is probably the most different. But how are you researching or diligencing projects that aren't in public market outside of just diligencing the actual team? Or is that the primarily where you're getting your strongest signals? Yeah, so Grin is a unique example because they kind of have this like grassroots effort, kind of just like Bitcoin. So there's a lot you can diligence publicly. But in terms of like the private rounds, I mean, yeah, it is honestly talking a lot to the team, really understanding what they're trying to build, the use cases for it. Very, very similar to VC style investing at that point, because you are making a bet on the team. But we're also like trying to understand like who are their competitors and what success have they been able to get, what traction, what are their competitors struggling with, why can this team maybe do a better job. So it's kind of like looking at the whole landscape and understanding like that specific use case. I wanted to go back to the uh, open source point for a second. I, th- I think one of the biggest problems you run into with open source projects is, yes, it's going to be incredibly interesting. Yes, there might be a lot of users, but how are you actually going to capture that value you produce? So what are cool business models or what are ways you see teams discover how to actually capture the value they create with these open source networks? I mean, that one's a really hard question, and I think we're all still figuring that out. But I think a really cool thing that we're just seeing right now is, like, for example, DAI, where almost 2% of all Ether is actually locked up in DAI. And so people are actually using Ether as collateral in these systems to then basically get leverage. So I think you're seeing cases like this where they're, like, all working together. In terms of the value capture, I mean... Yeah, it's it's really unclear. I think everyone kind of like agrees on the store value case, and that's primarily where we have invested in like the store value or store value with privacy. The others are uh, unclear. Um, we're willing to make bets there. Just because it's unclear doesn't mean that it's not a good bet. We just have to reflect our allocation sizes accordingly in our portfolio. But I do think, I mean, we see we're seeing like the increase in like people talking about governance, right? And so I we've made some governance bets just because we think that. There is potential there. We're just not sure exactly like how that is going to play out, but we want exposure still. Absolutely. And speaking of exposure, outside of privacy coins, how are you guys thinking about your portfolio construction? Yeah, so we actually, I, I know like a lot of people in the industry hate the word diversification, but I actually really love diversification, not from a market sense, but from a tech, like a technical sense. So this technology is all really, really new. And so, like, yeah, Bitcoin's 10 years old, but, like, the others are, like, only a few years old. And I think it's really important to make sure that you understand that technology can fail. Technology can have really bad issues that can cause this coin to completely fail. And so we we basically set themes for ourselves that we think are important. And then we basically make bets in that space on what we think has the best technology. And so within privacy itself, like we have five different bets because we think that they all come at it from like different viewpoints. 
and we want to make sure that we basically have the winners in our portfolio. So it's okay that you invest in things where it's actually not going to be a winner long run. Like that's completely okay. And I think like some people like can't get over that fact, but what we want to make sure is we have the winners in our portfolio. And so we reflect allocation sizes accordingly to what we think is going to actually be a winner. So right now, you know, like in the privacy space, I still think that like Monero is the strongest privacy coin, but Zcash has done a lot of really amazing upgrades and they have an extremely strong team that, you know, they certainly capture a lot of that, uh, especially as they start having more of their transactions be private. So it's important to just like be able to monitor the space and, and diversify accordingly. Got it. Are there any other like spaces outside of privacy that you're specifically looking at or has captured your attention? A lot of different things. I mean, definitely have been paying attention to the smart contracts platforms that are supposed to be competing with Ethereum. I think it's really clear Ethereum has a lot of work to do on scaling. So far, it's definitely the one in the lead, but certainly if they can't get their act together, I think that there's opportunity for other platforms. So we have looked at competitors that have been able to focus on scaling, but not make huge decentralization trade-offs. So I've been looking at a number of those projects and then I'm, I'm just a huge fan of Maker. Like the more time that I like spend thinking about, it, the more excited I get. I'm just super excited when they actually have multi-asset collateral. I think that's gonna be absolutely huge. So yeah, full disclosure, we own, own Maker, uh, if that's not clear. But yeah, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. The DeFi stuff is just super exciting to me. And uh, can you explain the DeFi stuff? Let's say I'm a Bitcoin maximalist and I want to be sold on what DeFi is. And what's the most bullish case for DeFi uh, sound like? Oh god, I like stop trying to convince Bitcoin maximalists. Like I just think I just like anger them more. Basically, it's this creation of where you're kind of like replicating the things we already know in existing financial markets, but recreating them in smart contracts and basically you can remove middlemen. You can make a lot of these operations cheaper. Uh, you can make it a bit more open. I think people exaggerate like how open it can be because at the same time like you still have to have regulation and you still need to do KYC and AML. So I think the one really cool thing is that you can these can be like interoperable and you can have these platforms like working really easily together. And so people can talk about like how you can combine like Xerox and Augur and Set or something. Like it's just really cool because they can like just kind of link together. So that's the one benefit of DeFi. I think uh, I think we're still like people also say like how there's not enough volume going through DeFi yet, but like again, like super early days. Like the early days of Bitcoin, like I don't think that there's that much volume that people are, you know, using for Bitcoin. So it's just, it's, it's, you can't dismiss that this is like interesting, innovative technology. I just think that we're just still in the early days. And does the end user, average user, like see any difference? Is it like, what are the biggest perks of participating in a DeFi system versus the, the alternatives we have today? I mean, one big perk is that like you're actually in control of your own funds, so you can custody your own funds instead of having to rely on this other system. I mean, I worked compliance at a centralized exchange before. Like, there's lots of reasons why you, someone can't get their money immediately. Like, you run into limits. You basically like need to upload another ID because your ID expired. You know, there's all kinds of things, and so people just have access to money whenever they need it. I think another aspect, though, that it's a big hurdle they're going to have to overcome is it's going to have to be like extremely easy easy to use and have to look just like your you know existing financial products and so I think we're kind of a bit away from that but I do think that this year is where we're going to see a significant um, user experience improvements so I'm pretty excited by that like I mean DYDX built Expo which like allows you to like easily loan out your ether and I was able to do that and it was like pretty quick it was like a few clicks and it was it was just a lot nicer of experience than than I've had before so yeah it's gonna be like a a slow process but I think this year will be really good for it I think another big part is making sure you've gained the trust of the users and so you did allude to something along the lines of having financial products look like the ones we have right now mm -hmm. but be decentralized what are other factors you think that will increase trust for the public or the mainstream at large using DeFi products i think a huge aspect of trust actually is that they know that 
that, like, I think actually volatility is a huge problem in this space. And it's not like their distrust of, like, people in this space is this distrust of this as an asset because like okay sure you're going to like loan out this money or you're going to borrow this money but it's extremely volatile and it like ends up impacting a lot of different things like you need to have stability if you're going to talk about like finance and so i think that like think like legitimately i think like stable coins even the centralized ones like usdc and and gemini stable coin i think are going to do a lot to like build trust in the system because and it's weird when i talk about build trust within the crypto space it's like really counterintuitive but it's actually really important like people want to be able to have an easy experience they want to have things not be so volatile so i think that's a huge aspect of it honestly i think it's just a matter of more education and just like better understanding of like private key management i still like i love this idea because like nick uh newman i think that's his last name he built he and like a team built this really cool project uh, during I think ETH Denver, and it's basically like split this like private key into multiple pieces using Shamir secret sharing, and you basically had like your friends and family own these keys, and so from the product side, all you see is like okay, who you want to have like you know key recovery for and so you just pick like your parents and your siblings or whatever and i think that's so cool because it just abstracts away this need to like trust this like system that you don't understand and so people like well i trust my like parents and i trust my family so i should be able to like recover my money this way and i really love that idea but like he i think didn't end up working on it and he's at casa now which is really cool too but um i'd love to see things like this that just like make people feel more comfortable and make them actually like want to use these things because when i talk to people outside the space they like freak out about having to deal with a private key like they lose things i mean i lose things all the time so how are they expected to like be able to ensure that this like you know this this private key that's responsible for like you know their life savings or something is is not going to get lost so i i think we need more products like that Absolutely. I think it's easy to sing the antitrust or not having to trust song, but then as soon as you do lose your money or do lose your keys, you want somebody to blame or a person that you're able to point the finger towards. And then if it's faceless, yeah, it's tough to blame yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to switch gears for a little bit. Uh, We talked about how you think of investing and we've you know covered uh, similarities and differences between a traditional VC and in the cryptocurrency space but I was also wondering like after you've made your investment how are you actually helping your portfolio companies and how is that different than a traditional VC helping a portfolio company versus a cryptocurrency company and what are similarities yeah, I love helping the portfolio projects. That's actually one of the things that excites me the most. Basically, they still run into the same problems that traditional companies run into. I definitely like always want to remind people of that because they think like, oh, like this whole team's like, you know, we're building decentralized systems and our team's distributed. So like we're totally different. But it's like, no, you still run into the same problems. Like you have to manage your finances. You have to recruit people. You have to build a culture that, you know, involves people wanting to stay and work there. So I, I take a lot of what I learned at Coinbase because I think that Coinbase built such a great culture of making people feel empowered and, and um, feeling like they can take charge and do their own thing. So I take a lot of what I learned at Coinbase and a lot of things that I think AIG didn't do well because they're such a big company and I really try to relay that information to the teams and I help a lot with recruiting these days just because it involves like, like I'll, I'll, I'll do like interviews for the teams and interviewing candidates, helping them understand like what are the right questions you should be asking candidates in the first place. How do you remove biases from this um, process? Literally like, you know, don't, you, you can't ask these candidates like different questions each time like you have no standardization among the candidates so helping them understand just like how do you build out like a team and kind of like a company I know they're a project or whatever they want to call themselves but it's still like a lot of the same and that's just like traditional VC but where it's different uh, that I think I took a lot of what I learned from working with the Xerox team is basically you're like once you do your token sell you're like basically like public from from that moment on and you know you're definitely like this like early stage company that's like public and it's very bizarre and so you have to manage a community and so what does that actually look like how do you get people to be excited about what you're building how do you keep people involved that aren't on your team basically like how do you think through even things like compensation and tokens like what's the right amount you should be giving what's the vesting schedule look like all of all of those things so I've learned a lot of lessons and great things that Xerox has done and I've kind of like relayed that information to the portfolio projects. Absolutely. I especially love that point, how after you've done a token sale, it is like running 
a company that's both early stage and has IPO'd mm-hmm. and where everybody can see it. And, you know, you th- you talk to founders and they they give you so many stories how in the early days they came to death, came close to death so many times. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is it wasn't public, right? So they had the luxury of being able to manage those uh, situations, albeit I'm sure they were tough internally as well, but keeping them internally. So it is different, a completely different community, marketing, PR, communications game that requires a whole... Uh, different skill set but I think mm-hmm. also extending grace to people being able to figure things out and I think on the other hand you are getting a close look at how companies you know suffer and how they consequently triumph before we get into our rapid rapid fire round the last question I wanted to ask you is so we have a good idea about what your thesis is but I was curious what your antithesis is so what are things you don't invest in or you want to see less of in the space I, I'm, like, really excited about people just, like, building all kinds of things and, like, playing around. So I don't want to, like, say, like, we shouldn't have people be building these things because it could actually, like, lead to more ideas. But, I mean, in general, like, I constantly get pitched, like, the next Ethereum competitor. And I think it's really cool because they are coming up with new ideas. But at the same time, like, it does, like, spread out the talent and, like, the work toward, you know, this, like, common goal of, like, let's just have a smart contract platform that can scale well. And so I think people come up with these like gimmicky new consensus mechanisms or something that really tries to separate themselves from the competition and I would really like to see more collaboration like it's I know it's not you're not going to like make as much money but like at the same time what you built could also go to zero so I, I do I do wish that there was more efforts kind of on what we currently have right now and like even bitcoin like you know people can still contribute to bitcoin and, and actually like help that help move that along so I'd like to see that I, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, other things that I've stayed out of that a lot of people have questioned me on in the past was, like, just stable coins in general. Like, again, I'm a huge fan of, like, these centralized stable coins or fiat coins or whatever you want to call them. I really like that, and I think it, like I said, builds trust in the platform. Obviously not an investable opportunity there if it works properly, so I don't invest there. And the only stablecoin investment we have made is Maker that governs DAI, but we've stayed out of all the other stablecoin investments. Oftentimes because like I really think collateral is actually needed in these systems. I think it's really hard to just create a stablecoin out of thin air like that. And again, I, I, I have stayed out of all of these. So I, back in 2018, that was a little bit different than how people were thinking. I remember a lot of people gave me crap for it, but yeah, we've pretty much just stuck to like Maker is the best one right now and we want to stick to it. Like internally, just personally, how do you stick to your guns and your conviction even when you're facing pressure from these, you know, bigger funds or investing firms to invest in a project that you know or you feel is not going to perform well, but you see other big names investing in? What's the thought? What does Linda's thought process look like? Or what does your moral compass say? In in terms of the peer pressure stuff, like, I don't know. I mean, I... I don't really like try to go off the like brand names at all because I've noticed actually like how much of a herd mentality there was like I just actually didn't know that before starting Scalar when I was at Coinbase like I never was investing in in things that would have herd mentality there was no like herd mentality around like Ethereum or anything now as an investor I do see like I've talked to teams where they're like oh well how come you didn't invest in it? I was like, well, what excites you about it? They're like, because this fund invested in it. And they're literally like, they literally did no due diligence on it and said that like they invested in something because someone else did. And multiple funds have told me that. And after hearing that, I'm like, well, I don't, I mean, that seems ridiculous to me and I don't ever want to participate in that. So I kind of like don't let that pressure affect me at all. It, playing the long-term game in that regardless of whether or not, you know, uh, one, I think for your investment side, when you said you want more collaboration, I think playing the long-term game in that understanding, you know, your your company or your project is finite, but these relationships, and if you go on and start another company or start another project, will continue to flourish, I think is an important thing to have uh, operators remember. And I think also the long-term game in regards to like, where do where is my vision? Where do I see this? And not being distracted distracted by uh, flashy or glamorous names investing in uh, projects that you don't feel personally aligned with your actual compass. All right, so this is going to be a little fun. We're going to have a rapid fire round on specific projects. So to start, what are your thoughts on Facebook stablecoin? I actually have mixed views on that. I, I 
think that's not, obviously not like a typical cryptocurrency because it's going to be created by Facebook and they're very much centralized. But I actually, what I love about it is that Facebook is really good at making products and they're really good at onboarding people. And I think this is actually ultimately going to help the space as a whole because they're going to bring more people into the space who just like understand a little bit more about cryptocurrencies. And that's a good thing for us. So I'm overall like, you know, I view it in a positive light. What are your thoughts on Grin? Grin is awesome. I love the grassroots effort that they've had um, and like that they didn't do this like you know, ICO or something and people are donating to it and the developers are really um, brilliant. And I, I think the tech is interesting. Not a fan of the monetary policy from an investment standpoint because you're very much incentivized to use it. And because of their linear inflation policy, like there's going to be very little supply in the beginning. So we're not part of this like mad rush to buy Grin right now, despite a lot of people trying to convince me otherwise. How have your thoughts on Monero evolved over time? So what were they before and what are they now? Actually, Monero is probably the one coin where like my thoughts haven't really changed too much. When I first heard about Monero, I was like, this is awesome. Like it's a private coin and all transactions are private by default, which is extremely important. And over time, they've just like shown how strong of a community they are in terms of really caring about privacy like privacy is the number one thing and i love that they have like on our monero they have uh, on reddit subreddit they they have skepticism sundays and they'll talk about like here are the things that we are concerned about with monero and like they're just a really great community and i think like that hasn't changed for me i think you are seeing like competitors that are trying to kind of be like the better privacy coin but like honestly monero is still reigns and in my view is the best privacy coin out there so it hasn't really changed wow thanks so much those were great projects to to cover and i was actually surprised about positivity on the facebook stable coin so i learned something new today so i wanted to take another uh, i want to switch gears one more time and i think what we end up falling into is this trap in crypto where we only talk about cryptocurrencies and only talk about blockchains and this is a scam and this isn't and i i think we lose the person in a lot of these conversations. And so I'm interested in learning more about you as a person and understand that we all contain multitudes and we all have interests outside this space. So I wanted to ask you some fun questions. One of these was uh, recently inspired by uh, this Neopets economy blog post that um, I'll link to so listeners Mm -hmm. can read about. But it's pretty much this article that goes through a lot of the hallmarks we see in different economic designs and incentives and the different attributes we see in these environments. So we see things like scarcity, bad sellers, pump and dumps, and all these schemes that happened on the Neopets scale. And it's a fun read. But when we were discussing this, I actually learned you were a Neopets star and you have a story there so I was uh, hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that story so I barely tell people this and I only told you because you're awesome but uh yeah I so Neopets was a huge part of my life for four years so I played uh fifth grade through eighth grade and so I was like 10 years old but uh I actually I learned pretty much like everything on Neopets so what Uh, was there an age were you able to play at 10 is there an age restriction on Neopets I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I so I was I was pseudonymous, so people didn't actually know my age, and I would like hang out with all these like other Neopet stars, and I can get into all of that. But and they'd be like like nineteen, they'd be like in their twenties, and I never told them my age because I was like mortified being like I'm ten. <laughs> um, so, anyways, but I pretty much learned everything on there. Like I I learned HTML so that I could create my own profiles. People were paying me to create profiles for them, so I was just coding a bunch and that's how I learned and uh, I also learned how to invest in stocks through Neopets they had their own Neopets stock market and so I learned about volatility through there I learned about the ups and downs of investing so you know crypto doesn't phase me Uh, and so I learned a lot through that I also ran a guild so I ran a guild with a few hundred people and that basically was a way of like learning how to do community management and you're basically running like a little mini company there and people got into fights and you had to like mediate that right or like figure out you know figure out like what to do in a really bad scenario you had to figure out how to get people engaged how do you bring more people into your guild how do you keep them like excited about 
being part of this versus something else so like how do you create a moat around yourself like I learned all of these things I ran a shop and so I would like arbitrage items and so I basically just like constantly search for items where someone underpriced them and then I would resell them at the market price and oh man I I have so many things and then so I really started gaining a following on Neopets when um, I started blogging which is like kind of like why I got comfortable blogging in crypto but I basically go around taking screenshots of the different things I saw that were just like funny or interesting and I'd write commentary on them and so I got a very large following that way and it kind of like shot me to this like weird situation where I was like this pseudonymous account where people were like actively following me and like I'd be on forums talking and people would be like flipping out that I would be even in that forum it was it was bizarre and like people would be mean too and I learned how to deal with criticism just again like as a 10 year old people like saying really mean things to me and not knowing my age or not knowing who I was and so dealing with that the digital collectibles piece of Neopets was really interesting because they had this thing called avatars where you basically you could collect avatars that would be like your profile picture and you could only gain certain avatars if you they they all had like different challenges or, or requirements to get that avatar but some of them would be like you had to own this specific item that was like a really really expensive item and so I remember like being obsessed with collecting these avatars because it really like showed like your experience in the game because you had like to do all these things to accomplish it. But I then basically I would take that really expensive item that like costs like it costs like a few million Neopets, which at the time is a lot. And I would basically loan it out to people and charge them fees so that they would hold on to it just for that brief moment, get their avatar and then send it back to me. So I had to develop this credit system, basically like understanding what's the likelihood that they're going to steal my steal my item. And so I would look through all of their factors like and I would like literally just like write rank them based off their factors and like how many days were they on this account? What were the Neopets they owned? What kind of items do they have? Basically, what's the risk that they would hurt their own reputation to steal from me? And then I would lend out based off that. And I think I got in trouble with Neopets, the company, because I was doing this. But anyways, so I learned about like collectibles and and kind of like reputation credit system. So it was like the best website and I I sometimes miss it. Wow, yeah, I was about to say, you can quote me on this, but I do think, yeah, the best training to join the crypto space might just be playing Neopets. (laughs) Let's find a way to revive it. Wow, what a fascinating story. That's awesome. So I know other things that have been on your mind lately have been protecting and getting better sleep, Mm -hmm. um, as well as documenting and tracking your moods. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about those and like what inspired you to focus and double down on both mood tracking and sleeping behavior. Yeah, so my friend Maxim, who's who works at Coinbase, recommended this book, Why We Sleep, to me, and I read it. And the reason I read it in the first place was because I'm I'm a crazy insomniac, and like since I was a kid, I just haven't been able to get good sleep because it's like really hard to shut my brain down. And when I read that book, I basically learned just like how damaging it is to not sleep and have a good like full eight hours night of rest on your like your physical body and your like mental self. Like it, it's just like damaging across the board and so I really decided like if there was something that I needed to like do was to really optimize for my my hours of sleep because it impacts myself my health other people around me because they have to deal with me when I'm like really tired or you know not feeling well so I think that was like one thing I just really need to optimize for and I learned a lot of things in that book but um one thing that like really struck me was that like being like a morning person or a night person is actually like it's like very heavily influenced by genetics and so I didn't really realize that because I always get my best thinking done at like midnight and that's kind of just how I've always been so for me I don't sleep until like usually um, 2 or 3 a.m and but then for work I'd have to you know be in the office by a certain time especially at AIG like you'd come in the office like 8 or 9 a.m like sharp and it was always just really hard for me and after reading that book I realized like I don't need to be like apologetic for wanting to like move a meeting back like a 7 a.m meeting back to like 9 or 10 or something because I just I just need to get my sleep done so I, I've learned that it's, it's okay to like have that perception. It's important to basically like not be caught up in looking at screens before I sleep. So I now, an hour before going to bed, I make sure I have a no screen policy. And so it's been good for so many reasons, but like normally I have been using that time to just like be on Twitter. And I like, I see a lot of like terrible things on Twitter and like people like making me angry. And it's just like builds up my anger right before sleeping which is like terrible because I just like don't feel good 
and then I wake up and I'm in like a weird mood. So not being on Twitter has actually been really good right before bed. And then I use that time to like take care of myself. So I'll use that time to either like exercise or meditate or read. And and I actually like really enjoy that and like look forward to it. So that's been really important for me. And just like uh, something random I learned from that book was like your body temperature is supposed to like naturally drop before you go to sleep. And so I always thought like I wanted to be like really warm and like comfortable before going to sleep, but actually the optimal temperature for sleep is 65 degrees Fahrenheit. And I always set my temperature at like 72 or something like that. And so just even changing the temperature before I go to sleep like has had enormous improvements. So I just learned a lot of tips that like just make me sleep better and the next day I'm like happier. It's just it's it's such a crazy like change that it's it's worth like every moment. And then in terms of the moods, yeah, I mean, I think working in a really volatile space like crypto is really important to like not get caught up in like the ups and downs of this whole space and like I've learned to like try to make things a little bit more stable like I was just talking to you how like I don't want my mood to be correlated to the markets and so uh, I don't want to like plot my mood and then just see that it's like you know one for one the market so I basically I keep track of my mood every single day now at the end of the day I basically um, I, I like document what my mood was and I also look for trends and so if I'm seeing that like every Wednesday I'm just like all of a sudden really stressed out like what's causing that do I have some recurring meeting you know that that makes me really stressed out or like you know am I like always finding myself like really tired on these days is it something with sleep related like it's just really helpful for me getting a better sense of where I am and yeah and then when I am when I am like not feeling good like knowing what I can do to just like bring myself to a better place basically wow I, I love the plotting your emotional <laughs> volatility yeah. by uh, coin market cap. Did you actually find there were trends between yeah. coin market cap prices and your mood? Yeah, sadly, there were definitely some trends there um, when I did the plotting. Yeah, I think honestly, a lot of people would have the same. Like, I bet you if I like were able to like measure toxicness of Twitter with coin and, and then plot that against coin market cap, it would be like so highly correlated. So yeah. Absolutely. And then once you've observed it, what are ways you actively work to uplift your mood or like what you, you, you realize like, you know, this meeting causes you stress or this puts a damper, like how are you reorganizing your life in ways that um, you actively manage your mood? Yeah. So I found that the days where I was actually in a really bad mood, like I was like really sad was because I got into some like argument or yeah, like negative situation with someone. And it was a result of poor communication. And I realized after using the app Wobot, which I really like, cause you basically talk to this like chat bot that helps you walk through like different communication styles that it was really important to basically not let my mood just be directly tied to someone else's actions. And so I learned that basically like I'm in control of my own feelings here and I should also be able to understand like how do I take control of the situation like maybe that person's having a really bad day themselves like have some empathy there and and say something that shows them I understand where they're coming from and that I want to work together to finding some solution and so kind of like having better conversations has been so much like helpful for me to actually like not feel that mood swing when someone else is like taking it out on me. And my favorite thing that I learned when I was at Coinbase was the separation of facts versus stories. And so basically when you have this like negative confrontation with someone, you basically list out all of the facts in the situation. If someone were to like observe this, what would they list down? And then you list out all the stories. And you realize that like basically everything that's like impacting your mood is basically like a story. So you've basically like created this situation in your head where you think someone's out to get you for some reason or that, you know, that they they have this like negative interpretation of you when that's actually not necessarily the case. So that like after I've really improved my communication style, I've realized has lifted up my mood after I talk to those specific people. So it's it's helped me out a lot. Wow. In addition to facts versus stories, are there other communication tactics or models you use that um, enhance your communication day to day? Yeah, being a better listener is actually so like active listening is like I think the term that we learned. So so I think that that's been really helpful for me because definitely many times where someone's really stressed out, like me just telling them, hey, maybe you shouldn't have done that. You know, that's not helpful. And so I've really like learned to control myself and be like, oh, man, like, like, you know, what do you think went wrong or 
you know, like, what do you think you could do differently in the future? Like, what do you, what would you want to do? And just like have them guide themselves through that versus me then getting into this like disagreement with them about how, how do you like solve that problem? Wow. I love that. And I think the last topic I wanted to touch on, and I know it's been a big part of your life is minimalism. Mm -hmm. We recently had this conversation about uh, how to simplify your life and how to kind of really dwindle down to the essentials. And you'd actually mentioned you were living out of of a backpack for a while or seeing Mm -hmm. if you could live the backpack lifestyle. Can you walk through what inspired it and how you were able to do it and what were the challenges that you faced? Yeah. So basically, so I grew up with, with my parents who I I mean, they had a lot of things taken away from them during the Cultural Revolution. So they had this, like, this, like, attachment to items because, like, they just, like, felt they didn't want it taken away. So, like, they basically, when I was growing up in the U.S., they would just keep everything. They wanted to, like, protect it. And it just, like, you never threw away something because it was valuable. And I, I grew up with just a lot of, like, items in the house. And, like, I just felt, like, it was very, like, it made things just very disorganized in my head. Like, it was hard to think clearly when you're just surrounded by, like, a lot of random items. And so the, when I got to college, I had, like, a fresh start, and I basically decided that I wanted to only ever own things that were essential. And so I decided that I would get rid of everything unless it was something, like, absolutely needed. And so I first made a list of 100 items that I would hold on to. And it, was, it took me, like, a few hours to make this list because you, like, basically... Um, you basically like realize like how many things you actually have like all these little things add up and so I'd have to constantly like switch things out and I finally got to that like list of 100 items and every single day from there on out uh, well first of all I threw out all the items that were not on the 100 or I like donated them and then from there on out I basically got rid of one item on that list per day and crossed it out and I did that because it was easing myself into getting rid of more things because it was really hard to just literally just get rid of everything and so I ended up getting down to 67 items and that actually included a lot of school books because I was a college student so I think I could get down even further I didn't want to throw away like my college textbooks yeah so I got down to those items and I was able to just like live out of a backpack and basically pick up and leave whenever I wanted to like I traveled around Europe with just my backpack for a few weeks and I'm now able to just like on the fly like just pick up and leave and go somewhere and it feels really freeing it feels like I don't have all these items like bogged down to like that I have to take care of or that I have to deal with my mind just feels clearer and that like just when I sit at my desk there's literally nothing on it I just find myself personally just having a, a, a better experience that way and then I also learned like uh, like recently that there was like a subreddit for this like r1 bag and it's like people just like a lot of people just like live out of their backpacks too and it's really cool because like started like looking at the community and it's, it's pretty awesome I really love that um that philosophy but yeah it's um and also like like I actually have like zero it sounds sad but I have like zero items where they're like something where I know it reminds me of something else or what, what's that what's the word I don't like sentimental, sentimental. Yeah. <laughs> but I basically don't even hold on to sentimental items because I feel like well, if it's someone that's alive, well, I can basically just make an effort to call them or I can send them a letter or an email or something. And if, you know, they passed away, well, I basically, like, we're very fortunate to be able to, like, have things. We, we live in a digital world, so I'm able to scan photos and basically keep them on my computer. And so I don't have any, like, physical, like, sentimental items anymore. Wow. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for sharing your insights on crypto and blockchain space at large, but then also giving us a peek into your personal life. It's been really enlightening. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.